There's a story that Charles Spurgeon once told about a young man who wanted to go to the mission field. There was an older gentleman by the name of Mr. Wilkes who was uh, appointed to uh, consider the young man's request. So Mr. Wilkes uh, wrote to the candidate to call him, uh, to have him call on him at 6 o'clock in the morning. And although the applicant lived uh, several miles away, he arrived promptly at the home of Mr. Wilkes at 6 a.m. sharp. He was ushered into the living room and was told to wait there for Mr. Wilkes. And so he waited and waited and waited for a couple of hours until finally Mr. Wilkes finally walked into the room without apology. He asked the young man, well, young man, so you want to be a missionary? Yes, sir, I do. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, sir, I certainly do. And have you an education? Yes, sir, a little, the young man replied. Well, now, let's see how you do. Can you spell cat? (laughs) The young man looked confused. He didn't quite know how to answer such a strange question, but he was patient and kind and gentle, and and he responded, C-A-T, cat. Very good said Mr. Wilkes. Now, can you spell dog? (laughs) Again confused, he answered D-O-G, dog. Well, very good, my boy, that's right. You're a good speller. But how are you with your math? Tell me, young man, what is two times two? (laughs) Well, the young man gave the right response, and to his surprise, he was quickly dismissed. Mr. Wilkes would later write and give a report to the committee saying this, I cordially recommend this young man. His testimony and character I have examined. I tried his self-denial. He was up early in the morning. I tried his patience by keeping him waiting. I tried his humility and temper by insulting his intelligence. He will do just fine. (laughs) It's an interesting method, granted, but patience is a true test of character. So how about you? How did you do this week with the discipline of holding your tongue? (laughs) Were you quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger? (laughs) Did you encourage someone this week? Did you take the time to consider the needs of someone else as more important than your own? I had the privilege of having lunch with with Doug Dindy this week, and uh, what a great encouragement that was for me just to hear what was going on in his life And in the life of his family and just to take some time to to pray together with each other and for each other. I hope you had some of those same kind of encouraging conversations this week as well. And I hope and pray that you continue to consider how to serve others. To regard one another as more important than yourself. This morning we're going to look at what I believe to be one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. One that reveals the ultimate act of humility. Where Jesus considered your need more important than his own. (laughs) And by God's provision, I didn't plan it out this way because I'm not nearly that good. But by God's provision, the passage that we will look at this morning fits perfectly into what we will do when we celebrate communion. And that's why we're going to do communion at the end. Because we're going to allow what God 
uh, instructs us in his word to prepare us for his table. I can't think of a better passage of scripture to do that than what we'll look at this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do come to you and pray with all humility of heart and mind that we bow before you with a listening heart, that we are attentive to what your word has to say. And Father, I pray that the profound weight and significance of what you have done on our behalf would cause us to respond in awe. I can't can't think of another word to describe the only right response to what we will look at this morning as we consider what you have done in our behalf. So, Father, I pray that 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 is the, the heart of worship that we have in response to your word this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. Turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We'll pick up where we left off last time. And and I'm just going to read verse 5 with you real quick. And and, uh, we're going to unpack this together. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude. This attitude is... A mindset, and more specifically, it's having the mind of Christ. I think it's the same idea as what Paul had in mind when he writes to the Romans and he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What's important here is to understand that Paul is not telling us to, to simply imitate Christ. We're not to make a list of his attributes, his his patience and his humility, his kindness and his gentleness, like a checklist so that we can go down and and mark them off. Patience. Got it. (laughs) Humility. I'm the best at that. Gentleness. Well, of course. (laughs) No, that's not what he has in mind. It's not a checklist. And, And in fact, It's not even meant for individual assessment. It says, having this attitude in yourselves. There is a corporate reality to this command. It's evidenced in how we relate to one another. Because humility is the ultimate outward reflection of an inward heart of surrender. When we surrender our heart to Christ... Humility with others will be an inevitable outcome of how we live. How do we know that? Well, Paul goes on to tell us. He says, look at Christ. Consider him. Let's look again, starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I want to stop here because I think Paul makes another very important point. Jesus existed, he says, in the form of God. The word form here is a small but important word. It's a Greek word that means to have both the nature and character of something. Paul is telling us is that when we see Jesus, we see both the nature and character of God. 
the writer of Hebrews essentially tells us the same thing when he says that when we see Jesus, we see the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. In other words, when you see Jesus, you see God. And we know this to be true because Jesus himself said that that was true. Several times he told the Jews, I and the Father are one. And they understood what Jesus was saying, didn't they? Because they picked up rocks to stone him. They called him a blasphemer because he claimed equality with God. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. And here we see Paul communicating the same thing. He tells us, when Jesus walked the earth, he was fully God. But Paul goes on to say, but he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus was fully God in both nature and character, but he limited himself in some way for our benefit. Here's what he did. Don't miss this. When the text says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, it is telling us that Although Jesus was God, he gave up the independent use of his divine nature for his own advantage. Okay, this is huge. I don't want you to miss this, so let me explain. We know that throughout his ministry, Jesus would often talk about his submission to the Father, didn't he? He told his disciples, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father, abiding in me, does his works. Over and over, Jesus talks about how he submits his will to the will of the Father. Remember the garden? What did he say? Not my will, Father, but your will be done. But Jesus is God, right? He can do anything he wants. Exactly. Exactly. But he chose, because he wanted to, give up his right of independence for your sake. That's what it means when he says that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did nothing on his own accord. He sacrificed the independent use of his divine power for his own advantage. Because here's the deal. At any point in time, Jesus could have justifiably said, I don't have to do this. And he would have been absolutely correct in making that statement. He had every right as God, of God of all creation, to remove his hands from the affairs of man and let nature take its course, which inevitably would have been the destruction of the human race. He had that right. But he relinquished that right as God in order to condescend as man so that we might be saved. I want you to think about this in the context of some of the things that that Jesus said 
in his ministry. One that immediately comes to mind to me is the interaction that he had with his disciples when he talked about the events that would be forthcoming. He he told them that he would go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and that ultimately he would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised. But do you remember what Peter said in response to that? John tells us that Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Have you ever wondered why that rebuke is so strong? Well, here's why. Peter is inviting Jesus to step outside of the will of the Father for his own personal protection, to exercise his right of independence. Peter didn't know what he was doing. But at that moment in time, he was a tool of Satan telling Jesus, you don't have to do this. You can step away. But Jesus resisted the temptation, choosing instead to humble himself by becoming obedient to the will of the Father regarding the needs of others. Your needs is more important than his own. Not my will, Father, but thy will be done. Look at verse 8. Excuse me, verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, he ma- and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was fully God, both in nature and character, but he surrendered his right to this divine nature for his own advantage. Paul now explains that the other half of the mystery of the uh, incarnation is that, that Jesus was in fact fully God, but he was also fully man, taking on the form, there that word is again, of a bondservant. Jesus took on the nature and character of a servant. As Mark's gospel tells us, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Just think about how Jesus repeatedly displayed this in his life. The example that we probably all think of as the epitome of this is when he humbled himself to wash the disciples' feet. You remember that none of the disciples, none of them, were willing to lower themselves to this level. In fact, they had already started the meal, the text tells us. (laughs) And they had chosen, instead of considering the needs of others as more important than their own, to eat a meal with dirty, stinky feet. And then Jesus stood up. The text says that he took off his outer garment and girded himself with a towel. And when he did this, he literally assumed the dress and posture of a slave, of a servant 
to the guests. Had a servant been in the room, that is exactly what it would have looked like. And Jesus is saying to them, I am that servant. And then he went on to each of the disciples to wash their feet in a servant's dress and in a servant's posture. It's really important to understand that that God did not exchange the, the form of God for the form of man. Rather, he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. But then it says, in the likeness of men. Now, now that's a different word, isn't it? The Greek word here describes something that is similar or like something without sharing the same essence or nature. Jesus was fully God with all the divine nature and character. And he was fully man sharing the complete nature and character of a bondservant. But there was a part of man's nature that he did not assume. What was that? His sin nature. That's how the writer of Hebrews could say that Jesus was tempted in all things, but without sin. Think about this in light of what we've just said. Jesus was tempted in all things. In doing so, he fully identified himself with the human race. There's nothing that you will encounter that in your life that Jesus didn't encounter in his life. Some of you pause at that. I know I have before because we ask the questions, but, but wait a second, Jesus wasn't a rich man, so did he really struggle with the temptation of greed? Or, or Jesus was single, could he covet another man's wife? Well, He could relate to all things, and here's why. We can better understand why Jesus could have been tempted in all things when we understand that sin at its core is any action not in accordance with the will of God. It's acting independent from God, choosing to do something my way and not God's way. Jesus had that choice because he was fully man. But he never, despite the temptations like that of Peter that we just looked at, or when you examine the temptations with Satan in the wilderness, you'll see the same thing. He never stepped out of the will of God, and therefore he never sinned. Instead, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Did you notice that no one humbled Jesus? Did you see that? It says he humbled himself. He willingly condescended in order to rescue you. Because if he doesn't do it, there's no other possible way that we can be saved. Jesus was uniquely qualified, fully God, fully man, to make the descent to save his people. Paul tells the Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His outward life of humility was a reflection of his inward heart of surrender. Here's something I thought about this past week that I have never considered before. You've heard the passage. It's all 
familiar. It's very familiar. It's where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. You remember that? It's a familiar passage, and when I've read this before, I've often thought about those who've been martyred for their faith. I've thought about those who've been killed in in the line of duty. Those who've laid down their life for the sake of others. And And I still think there's application to that. But I believe that when Jesus spoke those words, he had one person in mind. Himself. Because although the life sacrificed of a martyr or a soldier is noble, no man, no man has ever had the authority at any point in time to actually prevent his own death. No one. No man has had the power to say, as those bullets fly or those nails are being driven, I'm not going to do this. Jesus had that ability. He could have stepped away. He had that right. But he chose instead to empty himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Having been found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Greater love has no man than he, Jesus, who was willingly able to lay down his life so that you might be his friend. The object of his greatest affection. (laughs) But it gets better. Turn to verse 9 with me. Therefore also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. (laughs) Therefore, he highly exalted him. (laughs) Highly exalted. That's the only time you will see those words found in the New Testament. They're nowhere else. It literally means super exalted. (laughs) God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble, but here we learn he super exalts he who was exceedingly humble. He gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me just tell you that there's a whole lot more here than God giving Jesus a special name that when it's spoken that we recognize him. There's a whole lot more. To really understand the point that Paul is making here, I think we need to turn back to the text that I believe Paul had in mind when he wrote these words. So if you would, flip over to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20. In these verses that we will look at together, Isaiah is recording the words of God. So what I read to you, as we look at this together, is God speaking, okay? So look at Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. 
Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I've sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will share, will swear allegiance. Three times in those four verses and several times more, if you look at that passage of Scripture, God makes the repeated point. I am the Lord and there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, the one true God. To the point that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance to Yahweh. And they will proclaim, you are God alone and there is none beside you. In Philippians, Paul is taking this declaration made by God and he is saying, Jesus is Yahweh. He is the one true God. And that name, as he stated it, I believe is very purposeful. He said, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. What? Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, the mystery of the incarnation, when the Word became flesh... When God set aside his divine prerogative and he humbled himself by becoming a bondservant. But as Christ, Paul is telling us, Jesus is also the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the promise made by God to redeem his people. That's why Simeon, when he held that infant Christ in his hands, said what? My eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus was the promised Messiah. The salvation of the world. So that whoever believes in him will not perish. But have eternal life. But then he makes the most powerful declaration. When he says. This Jesus. Who is the Messiah. He is Lord. More literally. He is Yahweh. The one true God. And one day, every man, woman, and child, every angel, and every demon, every created being from all of created history will proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord. Just think about that for a second. Just think about it. Pilate, who stood that day before the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man, but that's not my problem. That's yours. You'll be there. Hitler, the most evil, ruthless dictator, I I think, who ever lived. (laughs) He'll be there. Joseph Smith. Donald Trump. (laughs) Muhammad. Gandhi. They will all be there. Even Satan will be there. And most importantly, you will be there. And if you happen to be the one 
kneeling next to Satan. I hope and pray that you will be rejoicing in your salvation as he mourns the reality of his doom. But make no mistake, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will humble the proud who chose to do it their way and not God's way. And he will exalt the humble, raising those who surrender their heart to him to be with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places to the glory of God the Father. Please don't miss the absolute power and beauty of this passage. The humility that Paul has called us to is demonstrated in the ultimate source of that humility in the life of Christ. He gave up his independence in order to accomplish our salvation. And in order for us to experience this salvation, we must give up our independence as well. We cannot enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ on our own terms. Salvation is an act of surrender. And I want us to understand that that act of surrender is just the beginning. There is a continual act of surrender, isn't there, as we continue to walk with Christ. If the life that we are called to live, like that of Christ, is to be evident, we must continually be dependent upon God like He was. It's that consistent prayer of surrender, not my will, but your will be done. And if this is our heart, our humility with others will naturally flow out of our dependence upon God. Now, I, uh, I struggled with this passage for this reason. <laughs> I don't think we can read this as it was intended for us and not be in awe. The responsibility that I felt to communicate this to you so that that was your response to this text is heavy. Because I want you to understand what God has done for your benefit. That he didn't have to do this. But that he condescended to become humble to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Because it was the only way. When we take the Lord's Supper together, which we will do now. I think it's only right that we consider him who knew no sin, and what he did on our behalf. Just think about the the words of our passage this morning where it says that having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. And having been found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also, God highly exalted him, giving him a name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When we take the Lord's Supper, 
That is what we are celebrating. We believe it to be true. And our life in him is made possible because of that.